Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us for our fourth podcast. We finally come up with a name for this. We've decided to name the podcast Vantage Point. I'm here back in the studio with myself, Robert Demergen, Andrew McGarry. Hey, how's it going? Daniel Preston. Hey. And Courtney's in the back again doing audio for us. Hello. Hello. I want to say thank you to Moody for providing the platform for us to be able to record this. Um, So just getting right into this, what are we talking about today, guys? We're talking about the Genesis 6-4 Nephilim. Yep. So this so this is a very controversial topic. Um, and what I'd like to do here is present a supernatural view for this passage. But before we get into this, why is this important? What what is it for people who don't know, what are we talking about? Why is this important? I want to hear from you too, Andrew. What why is this topic important? What is it about? And just Kind of a, give us a little crash course on what this is. I believe it's important because it really highlights the the corruption of humanity as a whole. From start to finish, we see it peppered throughout the Old Testament, a little bit in the New Testament, not so much. Kind of have to dig in to certain mm-hmm. books a little bit more. But it's it's important because it really does show the depravity of human nature, that we rebel against God, that we don't want to listen to him, that we don't like what he has done because of... Because of sin, because of sin in our lives. And like Sodom and Gomorrah, like the the angels in Genesis 6, that's that's kind of the theme that you can pick up on throughout Scripture from Genesis 6 and then into um, into Hebrews 13 and 2 Peter and Jude. That's kind of the mm-hmm. that's kind of the exegetical view. Okay. So real quick, Dan, I want to I want to get to you and, and why you think it's important, but real quick, let's just kind of set the stage for this. So Genesis 6-4, I want to read this first real quick because I feel like I want to provide more context for our listeners who may not know what we're talking about. But so, okay, so Genesis, so Genesis, first book of the Bible, chapter 6. I want to read verses 1 through, let's say, 4 or 5. And this is the text. We want to focus on this because this is a highly debated uh, pericope, to use some advanced language that me and Daniel were using earlier, a, 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 a piece of text that is um, that is highly debated, and it's important because it it depending on how we interpret this, it it will either it'll it'll support different types of worldviews. So anyway, let's get into this. So Genesis six uh, verse one. Now it came about, and this is I'm sorry, I'm reading from the uh, New American Standard uh, version for those of you curious. So now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. And then this is the fourth verse, key. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. So this is kind of just, just a snapshot of that chapter, but this is this is the, the key verse that we want to talk about. And so depending on how we interpret this, um, we're gonna get we're gonna end up all different places. So um, Dale, so real quick, before we get into some common interpretations of this passage, I want you to talk about why do you think uh, this topic is important, why it might apply to our listeners, and et cetera. Perfect. So this passage, as previously said, is Genesis 6, 
2 through 4, essentially what we've read. But this is placed very strategically before the Genesis flood narrative when God declares that he is sorry that he has created man um, because, okay, let's just read it. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. ESV Genesis 6, 5 through 8. But this is important because depending what you think of this passage, it highlights, it gives background justification for God wiping out creation. It's not only because of this, but it's a pattern that humankind has taken upon themselves to continually go against God, to take advantage the rich and powerful of the weak and poor, and to essentially slander the image of God to the point where God's like, oh my goodness, look what I've created. The th every thought, inkling of their desire is only evil all the time. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Mm -hmm. That's um, that's kind of the conclusion I've come to. Basically, that humanity is, when when God gave them dominion in Genesis 2 and 3, he said, go forth, you know, multiply. And they did that. And then they started to really abuse not only humans, you know, their brothers and sisters, but they started to abuse creation. Like, taking advantage of things that they, they shouldn't have a misusing God's creation for their own purposes, their own selfish desires. That was a big reason the flood came about. So, mm. good on Dan. So, yeah, thank you, Dan. I, I appreciate that. So, uh, just real quick, we're, we're going to go through a couple common interpretations of this passage, but Dan's going to uh, support a more non-supernatural um, view, and he's going to describe that a little bit more later. And me and Andrew are going to present a more supernatural view of this. Um, yeah. And a goal is I, I really want to synthesize ideas here. Not not to like, you know, just accept things that are contradicting, but like pull out the truth of what are these different interpretations getting at or what are they overlooking? Um, and specifically, in a, uh, one of the classes I've had here actually sp specifically focusing on Genesis really highlights what Dan was just saying, which is the focus of God in relationship specifically to man. I don't want I don't want that to get washed out when we start talking about um, specifically the Nephilim and how that gets interplayed. But I also don't want to say that, well, just because the Nephilim can't be here, at least in a supernatural sense, you know, this in the, the view that we're going to present, can't be there because, you know, this is solely focused on man. And so I want to, I want us to dialogue with that. Sure. Let's talk about three of the common views yeah. of this, this, um, this segment. Um, and so I'm going to present three and then the fourth is a supernatural view. So, the first common interpretation is that uh, is righteous Sethite men and wicked Canaanite women. Again, I, I don't want to put up a straw man just to knock it down, but I'm just trying to summarize these views quickly. Um, essentially, this is interpreting the sons of God in verse 2 to refer to godly men from the lineage of Seth and the daughters of men, also in verse 2, to refer to wicked Canaanite women. So essentially, of God and of men are 
I'd say more, I'm not sure if I'm using this correctly, but like a morality indicator, it's showing that, so these sons are, from, you know, this is the righteous, um, distinguished from the of men, you know. The, the unrighteous. The unrighteous. And there's this interbreeding, you know, between, I mean, just between righteous and unrighteous and humans. It's more allegorical or well, symbolic. There well, could, it kind of sounds silly to our ears, but if we really look at Nehemiah and Ezra, a huge yeah. component of Israelite tradition or culture is to stay within um, Yahweh worship. So mm-hmm. because we see it was yeah. because of marrying idolatrous women that Solomon fell and eventually Judah was taken into captive. So when they return from the exile, we see Nehemiah getting really upset when he sees children of Abraham mm-hmm. marrying Canaanites. He like intermingling intermingling yes. yes it's it's a big deal to the, in point, the old testament isn't yeah. there even a a mandated divorce i yes. believe yeah mm-hmm. so and that that's kind of an interest, interesting segment as well um okay so that that would be one view that's our first view uh and then moving on so i think dan this is more a view that, that you support um and maybe crit- critiquing a little bit but it's essentially uh powerful rulers who used their power to amass wives, and they entered into polygamous relationships, and uh, they established royal dynasties. And so this is this is coming from uh, these views are being are being quoted as presented in uh, the Moody Bible Commentary. So, um, but yeah, so so this is how they describe this view. Um, and Dan, any any words on that kind of that view, just briefly? Yeah. So I d- wouldn't necessarily doubt that that's what a lot of people would say, given the Moody Bible commentary states that as a particularly viewpoint or vantage point. Mm -hmm. But I would push back a little bit on the emphasis on dynastic creation and polygamous relationships. Okay, I think that the core of the message of Genesis 6 is really highlighting extortion of power, of powerful at the expense of the weak. So it's not necessarily the creation of dynastic rulership rulership or the amount of wives they have necessarily because it's not necessarily condemned in the Old Testament. So you see it as more the abuse of authority and power versus polygamy. And Let's get a little bit into the original languages here, but I think Robert previously mentioned the Hebrew for sons of God is B'nai Elohim. But yeah, B'nai Ha Elohim, yeah. And so there's two words for God, essentially, in that are often used in the Pentateuch, and it's Elohim and the holy name Adonai. Yahweh, as you've maybe heard of it. And there's key distinctions. Yahweh is the personal divine name that distinguishes the Israelite deity, I guess. And Elohim is not necessarily always a distinction of the one true God, Mm -hmm. not necessarily of spiritual deities either, like idolatry, oftentimes it's a designation of rulers. So the key of Elohim is ruler. 
So, so the Bene Ha Elohim. So would the be. sons of rulers. There are some uh, Jewish English translations that translate this: sons of rulers t- saw daughters of man were beautiful, mm-hmm. and took them as their wives. Okay, whatever. But so I see the key distinction here as these are power sons of powerful rulers that are abusing their power at the expense of the weak. And this this is why I'm saying it's such God views this in such a grievous manner because throughout his mandate is to take care mm-hmm. of creation. I mean when in the New Testament when Jesus is asked what is true religion, he says to care after orphans and widows, mm. essentially the least, the most vulnerable in society. Yeah. So that would be what I would advocate okay. for. Interesting, interesting. Okay, so just moving on to the, a third view, and this is the one actually um, supported as, I guess, the best view by the Moody Bible Commentary, and that is this, and I'm quoting, a, a view consistent with both the context and language of this passage views men... Uh, parentheses, the sons of God, as taking women, parentheses, the daughters of men in marriage, parentheses, for which the expression to take a wife slash woman is normally used. Uh, and then so I re- to restate it without the parentheses is men took women in marriage. And so I I personally don't like this view as much. It, it seems to, I understand what they're getting at, but it, it, it just seems to wash away a lot of what is, I believe, trying to be presented by sons of God, daughters of men, you know, and so it's just, I feel like it's kind of washing things away. And there's not, I'm not sure that there's, there's not too much I want to say more on this, but, you know, this is essentially kind of along with the other views, except it's not really, yeah, it's not really saying too much. The last thing I'd add is that in verse 4, Genesis 6, 4, it says, it talks about the Nephilim being just mighty human warriors, and they equate it with, so Nephilim, uh, we'll get into the words a little bit later. I, I know Daniel's talking about this a little, but Nephilim means fallen one, I believe, in Hebrew, and so uh, they equate that with the Hebrew term Giborim, which means mighty men, and because uh, Goliath is called a Giborim, a mighty warrior, they equate those two terms together, so it's uh, these Nephilim were... Uh, mighty warriors. So I, I would push back and say that Goliath was a Nephilim, and that's why he was a mighty warrior. So it was because he was this that he was that, not that because Goliath was a mighty warrior, we can say that these Nephilim are also. So I would I would take it a little different. I, I don't want to spend too much more time on the views because I want to get into the words themselves. Um, but so that's kind of just a, a a snapshot of those crash views. course. Yeah. So I, again, I don't want to straw man these things. If you hold to this view. Uh, you know that I'm not. You know, Daniel. Obviously, we have him here. You know, this is this is an open dialogue. We want we want this kind of flow of ideas. I don't want to just push things off because we don't agree with them. Um, but again, if I misportrayed it, please uh, somehow get in contact with me. I think you can actually message through the podcast app on Anchor. But anyway, um, so just getting into the key words, um, I want to touch on three words that are key key here. So that is in uh, verse one, man ha adam. In verse 2, sons of God, B'nai Ha Elohim. And in verse 4, giants, in the King James is translated giants or Nephilim. 
which is just the transliteration. Uh, and so this is also the Latin word like titan. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to get more into that because that's very important. Because that's an interesting topic to go down. There's a, there's a lot there. So uh, we might not need to spend too much time on the first word, but I just wanted to briefly bring it up because I feel it it really dispels some of the some of the the points of the f- the first few uh, interpretations. Um, also, for those of you interested, the majority of the information for these uh, interpretations is coming from. Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum in his book of Genesis, uh, he's got some stuff written. I don't completely adhere to his position, but there's some there's some good information there for those of you interested. And second, uh, the Bollinger Bible has some uh, notes and appendixes in the back that are are useful as well. So any of the any of you interested where we got this from, specifically me and Andrew's position, if you want a more biblical focus and study this, I'd suggest you look at those locations. So just to get into things, I feel like we've been dancing around it a lot. Uh, Genesis 6, 1, man, ha-adam. So the term man in verse 1 refers to all of mankind. This word is generic. It means humanity in general, including both male and female. At this time, men and women from all lineages descending from Adam and Eve are multiplying on the face of the earth. Verse 1 goes on to say that the daughters were born to them. There's no distinction between Sethites and Canaanites at this point. So this is more dispelling that first view. The daughters are born all from all lines of humanity. However righteous or unrighteous they may be, it is these same daughters from all tribes and lineages of man that the sons of God saw and took themselves as, and took for themselves as wives. Yeah. So just what I'm trying to say is there is a clear dichotomy or just setting apart of these two factions, man and of God, um, that's being set up right at the right at the gate with using Ha Adam. There's no distinction here. There. there and so, um, can can we just clarify for yeah. a second? So, Benai Ha Elohim means what? Okay, so yeah, that, that was the second word I want to get into. That is sons of God. Now, okay. and I want to get into that. Yeah, do so you, you want to touch on that now? Yeah, let's do okay, it now. Go ahead. You yeah. mentioned a dichotomy, so it's a separation between Ha Adam, the children of Adam, versus Benai Ha Elohim, which is referenced in Genesis six. Mm-hmm. Correct. So in Genesis yeah. 5, you see the lineage of Adam and Eve and their offspring. And then in Genesis 6, you see the kind of this, this corruption of that lineage come in via the angelic. That's how it, that's how it plays out, essentially, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and just moving forward, since we're going to touch on it now, this is key, Beneha Elohim. I want to talk about this, 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 I guess, phrase. Now, sons of God. Yeah. Now, real quick, just snapshot forward to the New Testament. You know, we are adopted children of God, right? We're sons of God. So, Amen. So I can, so I can see. I don't, and maybe I'm incorrect in saying this, but if we're essentially reading our reading New Testament and Old Testament, again, I might be incorrect in saying this. Perhaps the notion could be sons of God. Okay, well, you know, this is a cre- creation of man. Um, you know, and so you know, these, this is referring to man. Also, side tangent I, I want to get into just real quick. I was reading on the term sons of God specifically. It was referring to things directly created by God. So yeah. Adam and Eve were directly created by God, but but subsequent mankind was not. The angels were directly created by God, and and so that's why they're called sons of God. So that's, okay. that was a kind of an interesting okay. uh, thing I was reading. So, again, I haven't delved down that too much, yeah. um, but— I just thought it'd be interesting to point that out real quick. But I just what I want to go into next is just, um, and then Daniel, please give some pushback after this. Um, but I want to talk about how this term is used 
in the Old Testament, sons of God, B'nai Ha'elohim. So you actually get the term in Job 1.6 and 2.1, where Satan is presenting himself before God's court. It is also used in Job 38.7 in reference to the angelic beings that existed during creation. The term is also used in Daniel 3.25 in its singular form when Nebuchadnezzar sees Jesus in the midst of Israelites, which is interesting because this is this is like Jesus is the son of God, which actually in yeah. reading Arn, uh, Dr. Owen Fruchtenbaum's book, he actually talks how there's a big distinction between the one and only son of God and sons of God, this yeah. kind of, this language, how the language is being used. So if you want more in there, so go ahead. So what you're saying essentially is that this term, this phrase, B'nai Ha Elohim, is only associated, well, not only, but predominantly associated with supernatural creatures? It's associated with angelic beings. You, okay, angelic beings, because yeah. you see it used in Job when it's talking about angels and Satan presenting I mean, themselves. These, these are all the same creatures, perhaps of different order, but again, getting into what Well, okay, like, yeah. sure. Regardless of the order, though, it's talking specifically about scenarios where there's supernatural beings. Like, mm-hmm. not not ex- not human beings, but angelic or supernatural yeah. beings. You see it yeah. associated with Satan and angels in Job. You see it associated with the fourth person in the midst of the fire among Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Yeah. And you see it with, um, well, and, and actually, I want to touch this. There's a specific distinction between the three men and the Son of God in that that Daniel passage. Okay. Or was One it Daniel? who looks like the, the son, son of God. God. Yeah. Okay. So, so I believe there's a distinction there. So that's, again, highlighting okay. the distinction between man and, again, supernatural. So that's interesting. So that would that is strong pushback against the, the idea that this was just a, a human reproduction, that, that Sethite lineage. Yeah, and getting with Ha-Adam, focusing on all of mankind. Again, if you want to... to I would just reference back, please, if you want more details on how that term is used, I would reference those, uh, as I previously stated, those books that I mentioned. But um, again, I just just a couple more uh, usage. Um, uh, Psalm 29.1, use a similar term, sons of the mighty, but these are also referring to angelic beings. So, uh, yeah, so these these are just, these are the uses of, usages of the term. Um, and again, I think Andrew, you you just kind of laid out it's it's creating this distinction. Um, yeah, Daniel, any any thoughts on that? Yeah. So everything you're saying is fairly strong evidence leaning towards the claim, but just to maybe offer a little bit of feedback doesn't yeah. necessarily make a conclusive standpoint. The Book of Daniel is an apocalyptic literature written roughly 900 mm-hmm. years, so. Most scholars would say after the book of Genesis, different terminologies, languages used. Book of Psalms, Job, also written a solid 500 years later around that point. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, yeah, I guess... So you're saying there's some sort of shift in usage, perhaps? There is possibly, and I'm not so sure. And I think I'm just going to give my two reasons why I would say... I would not support a supernatural claim that deities are coming down, not deities, but angelic beings are coming down. The first one is just, I really don't think that the spiritual realm takes on human flesh where they're able to Mm -hmm. seminally transmit DNA towards women and create offspring. That just does not seem to be supported anywhere 
Interesting. Hang on. I don't know about just, that, actually. Just real quick. Do you guys want to delve down that rabbit trail? Because if you want, I just want to continue just sure. kind of talking about that. But I love that point. That's a great point. That's a so good do point. you guys want to touch on it now or get sure. back to let's it? Sure, let's go for it. Okay. But just re- real quick, Daniel, before before we move on, I just want to read that just regarding how usage might have changed. I, I was reading, um, again, referencing back, back to those books, but the usage in the Septuagint, Josephus, Book of Enoch, Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, Tart. Targum pseudo Jonathan, you know, to to seven pseudographical books, to Philo and the Midrashim, even other Semitic, other neighboring Semitic languages, saw this term. It all refer, it always referred to angelic beings. So I would say that perhaps not that there, at least the people, you know, within the 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 apocryphal period or even before then, and then slightly after. Um, and then I guess after the time of Christ, they all saw this as as a reference, to at least the term "sons of God" to angelic beings. So, yeah. um, uh, some scholars and pushing just pushing back to that, um, and this is coming again from same sources, but uh, some people think that the purely human view of six two began with Augustine and, and uh, Christome. So I think that they they, and I haven't researched this, but just kind of throwing that out there, perhaps. And again, if we know anything about Augustine and, and some of these, there was a lot of what is it? Allegory? Am, yeah. I, am I correct in saying that? A lot of yeah. allegory seeping in. Symbolism so the in son, interpretation of Scripture and the Old Testament. So sons of God is, again, seen through an Augustinian or, or, or Christomic view. I'm not yeah. sure how to say that. Um, so so that's that. But just, yeah, you know, I want to get back to your point. Angels cannot take on human form and procreate with women. And the son of God... Are you saying this? No, stating I, this? I'm, or I'm, this I'm is... recapping. I'm recapping. Okay. So... So and the son of God, the spirit, you know, the, the, the God realm. is spirit, you know, breaking through into reality, into the human flesh is is you know, that is when we see that. So let's let's dialogue about that. Um and then we'll yeah, we'll just keep moving forward. So just thoughts on that. Andrew or Yeah. Um so for a long time I was I held to Dan's position. I was of the of the belief that it's impossible for something spiritual to reproduce in a physical nature, in a physical way. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that gets. I I got that because it doesn't it doesn't make sense. How can you have something that is spirit reproduce something physical? It yeah. From a from a logic or a reason standpoint, it doesn't necessarily make sense if if you're being strict about it. Then I kind of softened a little bit here and there over the years, um, particularly because of scripture and my my take my understanding is uh that they can reproduce angels can reproduce though they shouldn't they have the capacity to do that and the reason i'm saying this is because uh passages like second peter 2 or hebrews 13 um or even jude 1 through 6 it says jude 1 i want to get into jude that later. 1 yeah. 6 through 7 Basically, it says that they left their first estate. The angels sinned and they left their first estate. Mm-hmm. They left their their first authority was to be holy and pure and unstained in the service of God for whatever he wanted. Mm-hmm. Well, what they did, as it says in Genesis 6, they came down, they left their first estate, they procreated with human women. And Can you please read it? Uh, yeah, Jude, let's let's yeah, read. Sure. I want to read both. Let's get in this now. Then J- okay. let's read Jude six and seven, and I want to read Second Peter two four through five, and then lastly, I want to touch on 
Matthew 22, 30, marriage and angels, because I think that's going to help us with, like, can angels marry? Can they procreate? And what was Jesus talking okay. about there? Okay. So, yeah, just hit on whichever one you want. Okay, so I'm reading from the New American Standard. Uh, this is Jude 1, 6 through 7. And angels who did not keep their own dominion, but abandoned their proper abode, he kept, that's God, has kept them in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, meaning the angels, indulged in gross immorality and went after their strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. What do we have here? Well, we have angels. We have Sodom and Gomorrah. These are both referenced in the same context, in the same passage. And it says that they left their first estate. What, is, what does that exactly mean? I think it means if you, if, you do a dig, if you dig into this, if you really get into it, it basically means that they, they took on some sort of physical form. I don't know how. I think the Bible is a supernatural book. That's, that might sound like a cop-out, but um, I hear strange things have happened in the Bible that we, don't sure. always, we can't always explain them. I think this is one of them. I think the angels took on a human form. They slept with these women, and... It's interesting that Sodom and Gomorrah is referenced there as well. It's, it's what is Sodom and Gomorrah known for? It's known for its sexual immorality. It's, it's gross sexual immorality. And I Talk think, about strange flesh real quick because that term is used with both Sodom and Gomorrah and, and in Jude, referring it to the, to the, uh, the Nephilim, right? It, um, so strange flesh. Now meaning this is, other or different flesh. And this is a sexual term, right? This is a, a term that is... It is. I, mean, I, I don't want to misspeak. I'm not 100% sure on that. Well, it, 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 well yeah. If you have it, a you lot can of people, yeah, a lot of people actually believe that this is a, a, a reference to a moral sexual relation. That's okay. what that is. So they went after strange flesh. So this is a sexual term. In the case of Sodom and Gomorrah, it was, it was a, a homosexual union, which was, and perhaps I've, I've even heard interpretations that said that when the two angels visit Lot, they knew they were angels. So this is kind of interesting. There's another interplay. That, I haven't researched that enough, but mm. some suggest that, uh, and again, I haven't researched this, but yeah. that th- those the people who wanted to sleep with those men were not, they, they weren't just men, but they also knew they were angels and who were in the appearance of men, but they could tell. Yeah. And so they wanted to, So and then this is kind of getting back to this kind of like, I think there's... Again, there's there's something there. There is something Beyond the the scope. Whenever we see... Sorry, just just to finish off. The question was, what do I think about the possibility of physical or spiritual becoming physical? I think this gives fairly strong support to that point. Mm -hmm. I think instead of allegorizing it or symbolizing it from the Old Testament, you you read it in kind of a a literal sense. It makes makes sense. Well, to a certain extent, I think it makes sense. Dan, sure. You want me, to say something? Yeah, I yeah. would love to comment on the previous said discussion. All right. First, I'd say it, Robert, addressing a point you were making. Mm-hmm. N- I find it slight gross speculate, not gross as in ew, but like yeah, I understand. Yeah, <laughs> speculation that perhaps extreme, the extreme yeah. speculation that the Sodom and Gomorrahites knew. Uh, yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah. The angels were angels. I mean, how how could you even possibly know that? No, I, I agree. First. I was just referencing And then secondly, that. Jude 6 through 7. Uh, oddly, I really don't see what you guys are 
really saying here, the angels did not stay in their own position of authority, ESV, mm-hmm. left, or, but God has kept in eternal chains under mm-hmm. gloomy darkness until judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Even Mm -hmm. uh, you're reading from the ESV? Mm -hmm. It says likewise. Likewise, yep. Uh Uh-huh. So interestingly with Jude, you know, especially since we're at Moody, I don't want to open up an extreme can of worms on the inerrancy debate, but the book of Jude is, I I don't even want to say notoriously, but it is known for using... Deuterocanonical it, tradition. It's quoted from Enoch, yeah. From first Enoch, it, it, I believe. Exactly. Where not necessarily saying this didn't historically happen. Yeah. But yeah. Jude appears to be making certain points from a pseudopographical Jewish tradition. I mean, a little bit later on, he talks about the archangel Micah disputing with the devil over Moses' body. Yeah. These things, to be so possibly bold, I'm not going to necessarily say they historically happened, but Jude is so using causing it. question. Are you are you basically saying you you're not really sure if it is accurate? Well, no. It's what is Jude doing with these passages? It's when. For example, Paul is quoting like a philosopher. A philosopher. Yeah. I was gonna say. I mean, what is Jude doing here? He's is quoting Spirit a Jewish, uh, like a saying. Ner- a saying, saying or, yeah. yes, to get a point across. And the way that I see this more, it's angels were created by God to serve Him. Mm-hmm. Whatever. I mean the the narrative of the fall of angels is shrouded in mystery. I mean, sure, a lot of theologians speculate that certain Isaiah passages, which are primarily directed towards, is it Cyrus, I think, is can also be tr- like transferred in a secondary manner towards Lucifer and the angels too. I'm not going to really say that you can't, but the point is it's mysterious. But okay. I think what we can, with a certain degree of certainty, sure, yeah. say is that angels were created by God to serve him. There seems to have been a sort of rebellion. Mm-hmm. I think this is kind of what it's talking about. So their primary position of authority was in the in heaven, yeah. what, wherever that is. Serving God. Second heaven. <laughs> and then what did they do? They put their own desires yeah. in front of their Duties naturally perhaps. created station. They sought to usurp their role in an act of likeful pride, I would say. And in a similar way, in Sodom and Gomorrah, where create humankind is created as priests of God to serve out his mission here on earth and instead of sticking to their own station which God put to glorify 
God by loving others and loving mm-hmm. creation. They chose to love themselves instead in another act of pride okay. and do whatever pleased them in the same way angels did whatever pleased them and God cast them into darkness until they will be judged like Sodom and Gomorrah in fire, the lake of fire later. Like the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah is like a foretelling of the future lake of fire. So it's it's like a going after of desires kind of thing in, in contra. Yeah, so God created humans and angels for a specific purpose. Okay. And we and angels chose to not follow our created purpose and do what we want to do instead. Okay. Yeah, no, I... However, yes, I would say to your guys' points, it does in the ESV say, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality. To continue with my claim, I'd say he's using Jewish... Deuter- and by deuterocanonical, I mean after the book of Malachi, before Jesus, what's known as the 400 silent years, mm-hmm. Jewish literature was written during so that the time. before the OT and the New T. Yes, the in between yeah. the New Testament and the Old okay. Testament. There's Jewish yeah. literature that's written that um, He's Jews and Protestant Christians do not recognize as Scripture. Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholics, Ethiopian, Coptic yeah. churches, yeah. they recognize this literature as canonical I know the to a certain extent. Yeah. Um, real quick, I, I want to get back to something Andrew was saying that might address some of these things. Um, but, Dan, I, I really appreciate that. I think that's, that is highlighting a certain aspect of how we as created beings are going against what it is, that, the order that God has set up. So I, I really appreciate that view. And, and kind, of, kind of going with that idea a little bit, I want to talk about, again, the spiritual meshing or interacting with the physical. And so uh, I would say that there is a set order to the world, a divide between the the physical and the spiritual. We see that. We know that. I think it's clear, actually, in Hebrews. It says that, that, you know, be careful who you're showing hospitality to because you might be entertaining angels unaware. Exactly. So we know from Scripture that oh, angels can point. take on the form of human. Yeah. So, I mean, it's that I don't know if there's any kind of... Okay. debate you want to make about that but to me that seems pretty straightforward i don't know oh i completely forgot about that thank you Courtney. that's actually very helpful but yeah what i was what i was going to say was uh there there is a set order of the world and uh i was listening to one commentator talk about the uniqueness of of the the genesis 6 for instance he was a proponent of the supernatural view but he was saying that god put in place a veil you know, between a, a strict, you know, and this is why, you know, there's the, in, uh, I believe it's Second Peter 2, 4 through 5, the unique sin of these angels. It's, it's uh, and Jude also, the conf- why there is such a specific outlining of the confinement of these angelic beings was because of the peculiarness of their sin. This going after strange flesh uh, erected this veil between the spiritual and the, the uh, material. But all I was going to say was, again, the reason they were punished was because that was against God's ordering of the world. And so I think we see this, you know, we have physical laws of, you know, how heat, you know, transfuses through an object or the diffraction of light or density and buoyancy, these kinds of things. Um, We see the physical order, but there's also a a spiritual law in, in a sense. You know, we see this in the Bible, obviously. We even see this in the legal codes. We, you know, why is murder wrong? 
I'd say it's written on our hearts. We know God has put it there. Was that Jeremiah 31, something like that? I don't remember. But the point is there, there's an order to the way that this world works. And so in the sense, there are, there's a, if, if we believe, and I do, that there, because the, I would say the Bible supports it, there's a supernatural realm. It is ordered by certain principles that we probably, we don't know for the most part. I'd actually think that uh, people practicing occult, you know, this is why the Bible, you know, off-limits witchcraft and these things. I think it is humans interacting with those spiritual principles in ways that they shouldn't. Um, and so anyway, I just wanted to push back and, and kind of say that, you know, this is the angels uh, taking on human form is is a unique violation of that, you know, and also of that the order. order. Of, of that, that order. order. So yeah, that, definitely. That, that's not really a, specifically a proof, but I, I just, I was thinking about that. Um, but anyway, I, I want to just say, you know, all of these were great opinions. I just want to get back to the words because there's there's one key word we haven't dealt with yet, and that is Nephilim, <laughs> the main word. And so um, just kind of coming full circle back to our three key main words, I want to talk about the term Nephilim. And so I want to talk about where that came from and how it's been used and also I'd say how it's been mistranslated a little bit. Um, and so, so due to the variety of ways it has been translated, the word Nephilim or often appears translated in the, in uh, most English Bibles. The Hebrew word means fallen ones. It was translated as gigantus in the Septuagint, which is the Greek word where we get our English word giant. Translations such as the KJV use the term giant. Gigantus, however, was the Greek word used to express the Latin idea of the titan, a being who is simply half God and half man. So actually the writer of this segment um, – well, who's who a proponent of this view, doesn't believe that the Nephilim were actual giants. He believes they were simply superhuman in the sense of intellect and physical attributes. Maybe we'll do a different segment on what exactly were the Nephilim. Were they actual giants? Were they yes. just superhuman beings? So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of on the, the – the, the, um, I'm not sure what to do with that myself. I think the key there is archaeological evidence, which we'll get into, I believe, in our second segment if we get to that. Yep. Or perhaps we'll touch on it today. Um, uh, rabbis were translating the rabbis who were translating the Hebrew Bible to the Septuagint used this term. Uh, what was it? Gigantus, because it it, it at the time it, it was taking that idea. The Hebrew, you know, the Nephilim in Hebrew was referring to the high, you know, this this demigod. Um, again, just kind of a uh, to what we'll be touching on. I want to talk about mythology and the demigods. You know, what were those? Where did that mythology come from? Is that a corrupted interpretation of what the Bible actually said, and I, I would say yes, and so we'll get into that later. Um, but it's the concept of this hybrid; it's this half being. So, so that's so that's where the the term is coming from, and how it was used, why it was translated that way. And so, I don't know any thoughts on that. The term Nephilim, how it's yeah, used. So, yeah. Nephilim, it. I mean, to use a traditional, the brown. Driver Briggs lex lexicon done in 1908. It does give the general translation as giants, as you were, you yeah, kind yeah. of touched a little bit on the history of that. But I know there are secondary, um, so not sources, but secondary opinions which argue that Nephilim means is a derivative of the Hebrew verb nephal, which yeah. is. To fall, fall, to fall, to fall. So, I think that would be a more like a Fallen more faithful Hebrew, yeah, uh, hermeneutic to use that word. Okay, phrase for the term nephilim. 
I I disagree with that. Just to push back, because if you interpret it that way, if you interpret it as someone who has fallen, then why is it necessary that Goliath has cubits given in reference to his height? Or Og, the king of Bashan, who has cubits, a measurement reference given for his bed or his couch. What like do you these, mean? So if we interpret it that way, the way you suggest, to fall, to fall like, yeah. as opposed to giant or someone of large, physically large stature, then it makes the the height references for Goliath or the height or the length and width reference for Og's bed kind of irrelevant or superfluous. Like it's it's unnecessary. Because right, if they're fallen, yeah. it doesn't make sense. So these were if giants. You, these if you interpret it larger. as right, if you interpret it in uh the sense that these are giants, these are bigger people, Goliath's height makes sense. Yeah, he's fallen. He's definitely fallen. He's he, you know, he's slandering the people of God. He's threatening to kill all of them. He wants to kill David. Well, it just kind of, it proves the superiority of God, of what David did when he goes in front of this army with literal giants in them. Like the whole reason the Canaanites, uh, sorry, not the Canaanites, the whole reason the Israelites didn't go into the land of Canaan was because they were afraid. Why were they afraid? Because they saw giants, because they saw things that made them fearful when they weren't trusting God, when they weren't trusting this literal pillar of fire and cloud that split the sea for them, that, okay, yeah. you know, brought water from a rock that was this huge flame on top of a mountain. He, he wanted a relationship with them. He wanted to, to guide them, and he wanted, to, he wanted them to trust him, but they didn't. They, they were fearful. They trusted in their own their own desires, their own sinfulness, their own corruption. I, I want to touch on two points, kind of touching on that. Um, first is that there, so there were giants in Canaan. Sure. So that's, so the, when the spies, you know, because uh, one, one commentator I was reading says that they were lying. There weren't really Nephilim there. Again, there is the great I've, I've heard that before. And so I, and so I push back on that because it does make sense in the consistency sense because God created the, he had the flood to essentially get rid of this corruption. But then there's a second outbreak again, and also after that. And if you'd like to, to read a view that argues that there wasn't a second outbreak, again, I direct you to the, the book of Genesis, as I mentioned earlier. Um, the, the commentary, I mean, not the actual book. But, uh, yeah. but um, so, so there's that view. And second, I want to touch on, and this is something that really challenged my faith, and I, we don't need to spend too much time on it, but God is, when he tells the Israelites to wipe out entire groups of people. Oof. Now this this was hard for me to read. I mean, yeah. because one one interpretation is God was really merciful and giving them lots of time to repent, and they were you know being can't they were you know killing their children and you know all that. And so you're like, okay, I get it. They were cannibals and they were doing evil things. What whatever you know they were doing evil things. Whatever we we, we talk about this. So this is why God you know says Israelites wipe them out. They're in the they're in the promised land. And so a second thing is there is a distinction. Some I may be wrong on this, but are some of the tribes, and Dan, I don't know if this is correct, but are some of the tribes completely wiped out? God commands them completely wipe these out, and some of them are not. Is that is that correct? I'm just not. I think so, yeah. Some yeah. of them were totally wiped out. Well, at least in the sense that God commanded mm -hmm. them yes. to wipe out some and not. Mm -hmm. So yes. my question is, is that were some of these, and again, and the Bullinger, Bullinger appendix, some of his notes um, talk about, yes, as, and this is kind of getting into the big picture of why is there even an outbreak. 
um, let me touch on this now, I guess. God's focus is, in Genesis, what he has revealed to Satan and mankind is, I will crush this, uh, was it 315, the promise, Genesis 315, I will crush the head of the serpent and you will bruise his heel, something like that, right? Yep. Yeah, okay, so this is what God has revealed to Satan. I am going to, you are going to be destroyed through the seed of the woman. He corrupts the seed of the woman through Genesis 6-4. This is what's happening. We see this this angelic inner, inner marriage and things, so God is, is um, I guess, purging that. Then second, he narrows his focus to Abraham. So what does the devil do? And this is, again, in the Bulger notes. This is his interpretation. There is a second outbreak, and he the promised land, which is where where God, aside from the uh, just plethora of things that where, where Satan is trying to destroy Abraham's lineage, he's always trying to, you know, sabotage God. He fills the promised land with these beings, and so then the Israelites are sent in, and they're asked to essentially clean up the place, you know? Yeah. And so— uh, this is where I, you know, this is, and this was hard for me. Why is God killing all of them? The children. Like, what the heck? Why are you killing the children? And the well, even the animals, too. That's brought up, too. I'm like, you know, why, why is this, this wholesale slaughter of people? How is this the loving God? And you get this from the atheists and the this, and this is kind of touching on a bunch of points, but it's a big question of my faith. Yeah. And so for me, I really saw this as, okay, there's something bigger going on here. God isn't doing this for no reason. You know, this isn't just some, so, the, and that, again, that was a really big step in my own faith. I was like, okay, I, I gained some insight for this. So that was helpful for me. Um, but so, and, any thoughts on that? You know, just. I think it's a bigger topic than we have time to get into right now. Okay. Okay. I, I would definitely like to spend another podcast addressing that, but it's too big. It's. Okay. You could yeah, spend an hour definitely. on that. Okay. Yeah. I just wanted to bring that up because that was, I, I felt that was pertinent and important. Um, so a couple, couple more points and. So I want to just I want to touch on Noah's perfect genealogy. What does the term perfect mean? Uh, and then second, I just want to look at this in like I want to start touching on archaeological evidence and then like mythology. And I we just want to do a teaser to that. So then we'll cover that in part two. So um, just real quick, Noah's perfect genealogy. This is coming out of the Bullinger's interpretation. Um, Can we clarify? Not that his DNA was like perfect, but that his his yeah. descendants or his his ancestors didn't intermingle with any of the giants, any of the angels. That's what you're saying, right? Well, let me, yeah, the term is, uh, where, where is it? Where is it? I actually don't have the term. I think it's tamim. I, no, I don't, I don't remember the word offhand, but it is specifically ritual purity, okay. sacrificial. It is the same perfect okay. used for the sacrifices. So it's not like unblemished. the kind of unblemished. Sure. Yeah, it, it's talking about the perfect like that kind of thing. So, uh, and, and in the notes I was reading, Belinger takes this as specifically referring to not like you know like necessarily moral righteousness, which is I would say also true. You know, to some extent. I mean, um, but also, oh yeah, it is ta- tamim. Yeah, it is. It is the the word tamim, a perfect, okay. blameless. Uh, and so, it is this. Oh, here's actually a quote. Okay, the Hebrew word tamim means without blemish and is the technical word for bodily and physical perfection and not moral. This is Bollinger's notes. Hence, it is used of animals of sacrificial purity, uh, Exodus 12, 5, 29, 1, Leviticus 1, 3, etc. This shows that Genesis 6, 9 does not speak of Noah's moral perfection, but tells us that he and his family alone had preserved their pedigree and kept it pure in spite of the prevailing corruption brought on by the fallen angels. Now, this is interesting because I was just in a class on Genesis here with a wonderful teacher of mine, and he was— just saying, you know, 
you know, he was talking about essentially, uh, I believe he was talking about how this is more moral. And I and his interpret contr- contrast to uh, kind of the rest of mankind, I hope I'm not misquoting him or his a p- position on that. And I also thought that was very valid. So again, I've, I'm wrestling with that myself, but again, if this is what the word means. So I just want to throw that out there. Um, real quick, how long have we been going for? We're almost at an hour. Okay, cool. So I don't want to take this too long, but I do want to just kind of touch on a few things just to get people interested. Um, Andrew, let's talk about throw out strongest facts and pointers to archaeological evidence for Nephilim, elongated skulls, DNA. <laughs> just just throw it out there, and we're going to end. Okay. okay. So, in, in Scripture, you look throughout the Old Testament, you see passage after passage after passage in the historical books or the or – the, uh, yeah, basically the historical books like Numbers or Chronicles or Kings or even in Genesis, Samuel, Joshua. These are the books that describe Israel's history. Mm-hmm. As they go through the, the Exodus, as they go through uh, the purging of uh, the Promised Land, you see it talk about giants all over the place. Mm-hmm. And you see references to cities like Gath. That's where that's where Goliath was supposedly from. I remember reading a, a while ago now, they discovered the arche- what they think is the archaeological remains of the city of Gath. They have these massive doorposts. I mean, I know that's not uncommon in ancient cities, but it's just interesting that there is actual legitimate archaeological evidence for these things. Um, so talk about talk about the, the skulls. Real quick. The skulls. Okay, there's a guy by the name of um, Brian Forrester. He's a researcher and a writer, and uh, he has been... He has been researching this topic of giants or Nephilim or... Uh, supernatural sort of mm-hmm. mingling with with humans. He's been researching this for for many years, as far as I can find. Um, and he's he's found skulls in, or actually, he's been testing the skulls. He's been doing DNA testing on these skulls that they found in Peru. They're these unusually large, elongated skulls that don't match normal um, mm-hmm. physiological shapes for for human skulls there's something there's something very abnormal about them i guess we'll have to get into next time but these aren't just head-bound individuals are they when you say head-bound you mean the ones that have had their heads bound or or wrapped or things like that and they're just humans who are it does not appear that they are just humans that's the puzzler that's the kicker we can get into that all right dna wise you mean uh we can talk about that later yeah just verifying (laughs) these are in Peru, not the Holy Land, correct? They have found them in Peru. They have found them in the Black Sea region. They haven't, well, I, I won't say that they haven't because I haven't researched enough. I They've found them in the Middle East, the ancient Near East. Okay. They found them in that region. They found them in South America. They've actually found them in North America. Um, they've found them in a lot of different places across the globe. All right. So you know what? That is a topic for next time. So just in closing, I want to say a few points. Number one, uh, thank you guys for being here. Um, I, I feel like I, I want to provide a balanced platform for these kinds of discussions. I don't want it to be just, you, you know, here here is one view, and we're because I know there's so many other people who do not hold to this view. This is a minority view, the supernatural view, and I and I accept that. Um, but what I'd like to say is, for the person who who is still kind of on on the edge of what they believe, you know, just pray about this. You know, let God show you this. And second, um, and this will cover in part two, what is this archaeological evidence? You know, is this just, you know, garbage people are making up? Is this something that, uh, 
you know, are people just seeing what they want to see? We're going to get in that more next time. But uh, thank you for joining us, Daniel. Thank you, Andrew and Courtney. Thank you all for being here. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in again because without you, this wouldn't mean anything. So, <laughs> you know, let me just end in prayer. Dear God, I just thank you so much for this podcast. And I just pray you bless all the listeners out there, Christian, non Christian. I don't know who's listening, but everyone out there, just bless them. I pray they have a wonderful day. Um, and I pray that they'll think about uh, what we shared today. Uh, yeah. Amen. 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 All right. Bye-bye, guys. See you next time. Deuces.